Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. My guest for this episode of Bridging the Gaps is Julio Otino, Dean of Engineering and Applied Sciences and Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering at Northwestern University, Illinois. He's also the founding co-director of Northwestern University's Institute on Complex Systems. Today, we are going to discuss his new book, The Nexus, Augmented Thinking for a Complex World, The New Convergence of Art, Technology and Science. Julio Tino is one of the authors of this book. Julio Tino, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. I'm delighted to be with you. Julio, by profession, you are an engineer. Uh, what got you interested in the topic of convergence of art, technology, and science? I'm an engineer, but growing up, I was also an artist. Uh, I was blessed that my mother was a classically trained artist. I could work on all her pieces and see what she did. My father was in histology and embryology, so I, I was surrounded by microscopes and science. So for a while, I was keeping math and art sort of together. I painted furiously. I even exhibited, I had a solo show. So that part of me, it doesn't really bubble up much in my day-to-day -day work as dean. It has worked on my research. My research, um, I have been able to keep it in parallel. I'm a member of the National Academy of Engineering. The National Academy of Science is what everybody would like to be in this, but I was able to do that as a dean. So I kept the two things sort of always in parallel and this book sort of represents a culmination of those two strands coming together. I always could see one side, how they did things, and the other one, and having a kind of view, landscape view of all the disciplines within engineering and applied science, from applied math, applied physics, computer science, all the branches of engineering, gave me kind of really this broad perspective that somehow gets distilled a little bit in, in the context of this book. In the title of the book, you say, The New Convergence of Art, Technology and Science. Uh, I'm keen to understand why you are using the word new here. Uh, are you alluding to the point that at the beginning, these disciplines were practiced uh, jointly and then these uh, disciplines uh, diverged? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you specifically why I use the word no. So in the Renaissance, the word science didn't exist, the word technology didn't exist, but people essentially were doing the three things together. And eventually things bifurcated because at some point, people who could invest money in securing the thinking of people who did math and technology, like Niccolò Tartaglia in the trajectory of cannonballs, they started putting more money on people who were doing science and technology and putting less emphasis on philosophy and things like that. So that was 
Renaissance and post-Renaissance. But the, the word new, I'm using it now in the following sense. In, in the last, I would say, 70, 80 years, artists are more entrepreneurial than ever. And I have been surprised on how if you put in a group artists and scientists and engineers, how quickly people in the art side grasp what they have to know to do what they want to do. So I have been learned, for example, how good they are in coding, some of them. So artists are also much more able than before to seek partnerships, also to kind of be more promoters of their own work, as opposed to I don't know, the beginning of the 20th century with, uh, I don't know, when Picasso was bubbling up and Stravinsky and people like that. And artists were more like cultural aristocrats. Now it's more, they're more willing to cooperate with scientists and engineers than ever before. And much of the work that they do demands that they were able to close this gap. And I can give you specific examples of people coming from the outside who are able to reframe problems and work much more closely with people in science. And I'm not talking about the obvious collaboration that has to do with what people are usually fascinated with, which is, oh, was there a painting underneath this painting that I know, the Kooning did or Picasso did and restoration and curation of... No, I'm talking about producing original pieces of art that involve really merging of two brains to produce something new. I would like to stay with these examples that you were giving uh, from history. And uh, in the book and in your presentations, you discuss the work of Galileo and Louis Pasteur, uh, where we get this impression that their work involved skills from the disciplines of science, art and technology. Galileo is a fantastic example. So Galileo... Galileo was trained mostly in Florence, and Florence was the first place that had an Academia del Diseño, created by Giorgio Vasari, who is arguably the first art historian in the world. So, La Academia del Diseño was training ground for architects, painters, sculptors, and involved lots of studies in perspective, uh, three-dimensional renderings of shadows, uh, really almost like theorem-like, uh, putting representation of the real world and vanishing points, all perspective in there. In fact, La Academia had even a, a position Galileo actually applied for this position and was not accepted for a mathematician, okay? So that was in the air in the time that Galileo was in Florence and then in Padua. And at some point, the story goes that Galileo uh, secure some of these optical tubes, okay? Optical tubes, now we'll call them a telescope, 
but in at those times, no one imagined that they would be of any use looking at the sky because Aristotle had declared that the, the skies were immutable. So what's the point of looking in there? Even the moon was supposed to be a perfect sphere. It was depicted in, in sort of religious renderings with the Virgin Mary on top of it. Perfect sphere. Nevertheless, Galileo in Florence and Padua and Harriot in London decided to point this optical tube, which up to that point, the use of the opt opt optical tubes, the way that they were being sold to little city-states was to really detect advancing armies before they got too close, okay? But they decided, so the technology there is the optical tube. And Galileo and Harriot decided to look at the moon. They both drew what they saw. Galileo did watercolors and Harriot did some ink drawings. But Galileo could see by the shadows and the evolution of the shadows based on the training that he had in perspective, that there were craters in the moon. He could even calculate the height of the craters in the moon. And Harriot, who had the very same image in front of his eyes, could not. So the artistic eye of Galileo helped him quite a bit in abstracting the essential features of the moon but he had the scientific training with math and perspective, the technology, which was the optical tubes, but also the context of the environment that he was living in. There was nothing in London comparable to what Galileo was experiencing in Padua. So that story has all the elements, technology, art, and science together. Yeah, I think it's a great story. The story of Pasteur is a little bit different. Pasteur was also, uh, when he was young, an aspiring artist. He did lots of pastels and more important to the story, etchings. And in etchings, no matter what kind of etching you do, uh, you draw the image on either metal, you draw uh, things with a sharp instrument, you, the surface has been oiled, and then you use an acid to erode the parts that have been exposed, or it could be a piece of marble, again, wax. But the point is, with the image that you get is the mirror image that you draw. And Galileo, Galileo, sorry, uh, uh, Pasteur did many of these. So you get used to see the image and the mirror image. In fact, I, I, I don't know how common this is, but when I drew something, a painting, I would put the painting in front of a mirror because it would magnify imperfections, angles. Uh, you get used to see it in one way. So. Galileo, uh, sorry, again, 
Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, did many of these things. And at some point, I do not know exactly why, he decided to look at the crystallization of substances that now in the common language that evolved as the Pasteur did these experiments, uh, are racemic mixtures. Racemic mixtures means that there are two classes of crystals. In fact, this goes down to molecular level in which there are molecules that are mirror image of each other, but they are not the same because like my right hand and left hand, they are mirror images of each other, but they are not identical. I cannot superpose them. And he did this uh, with a couple of substances and crystallized this. I do not know how big the crystals were that he obtained. Uh, I had conversations with a fellow named Joseph Gall, who wrote the first papers on this, but he could, and the idea is that his mind was prepared to see this in this jumble of crystals, see that these crystals with many facets, uh, the Pasteur Museum in Paris has some of the images that he did made in wood with color faces. And you have to be really, really good in seeing that these crystals are mirror images of each other. So in the case of Pasteur, his training as an artist and the ability to see the world as was and the mirror image of that world helped in that discovery that is crucial to the functioning of life. Now we know that, for example, all DNA has one handedness and we can only imagine what would happen with life in which DNA was called the other way. But those are two examples of very famous people in science that had some training in art and how crucial it was that training in what they were able to uncover. So how, why, and when did this divergence of these disciplines happen? It happened little by little, but as I mentioned, uh, once money started flowing to people like Niccolo Tartaglia, is the example I mentioned, even Da Vinci, when he tried to sell his services to uh, different places like, I think the Sforzas, he mentioned as, a, as an afterthought, by the way, I can also paint, uh, he sold himself more as an engineer, uh, someone who could change the course of rivers, design machines. Uh, eventually, the divergence kind of widened when you reach people like uh, Lagrange and Laplace. Lagrange, to me, one of the most magical areas in all humanity is mathematics, okay? Because a, a math result is forever. And you, we can argue if math is invented or discovered, there are things that you have to kind of agree that they were there and people are able to kind of lift the veil and discover that they were there. So once a result is there, it's forever. And at some point, maybe the crutches that you use in thinking about the problem, maybe visual, they were removed. 
to the point that Lagrange, when he wrote his famous book in analytical mechanics, he said proudly in the preface of the book, you shall find no pictures in this book. And it was true, pictures were seen as unnecessary crutches. And you are not going to see pictures in theoretical computer science, for example. But on the other hand, there are people as famous as well as Bayestras, for example, was famous for no using any single picture anywhere in his work. Uh, but Feynman thought visually. Uh, Einstein thought more visually. And it kind of helps the reader sort of be accompanying you in your thoughts on how you discover something. But the point is, for many people in math, what matters is the final result and not the process that led to the result. So all traces of the scaffold get removed. Now, the really interesting thing is that the common perception of people is that art is something that thrives in moments of brilliance and epiphanies. And, but the opposite is true. In art, you can see the evolution of something clearly. You, uh, Guernica, for example, the famous painting by Picasso, Picasso did 43 sort of sketches of various degrees of sophistication. We know this because when he was doing this, his mistress Dora Mar took pictures of all of them. And so Guernica didn't appear in a moment of inspiration. It was an idea that got evolved. And what happens in science and even technology, we don't want to know all the iterations that I don't know, the iPhone had before it became the iPhone. At one moment, you unveil it, and all the things that were proofs get kind of... But from an educational viewpoint, for students especially, I think the education will be richer if they knew all the perspiration that went into producing something. We're not is a theorem. You and I know that a theorem is not proved logically. You imagine it, and then you go and try to show that you have the right hunch. But sometimes you have the wrong hunch, and sometimes you have it, but it took you a lot of time to arrive to the result. So, uh, so that's kind of one of the most common misconceptions. And it has to do with what I think is at the essence of what we try to put in this book, which is we, we tend to equate people by the products that they produce. I oh, know, a writer with a book, a mathematician with a theorem, a painter with a painting, a technologist with some artifact. But the important thing is to understand how they thought. What's the thinking that went into doing that? And if you connect more at the level of the thinking, you're able to have much richer conversations with people. 
It's not like I'm advocating that, oh, so you grew up in science, you become an artist. No, it's just understand your, your thinking space gets expanded if you can understand a little bit on how other people think. This nicely brings us to my next question. At the core of the book is the idea of the nexus. You suggest that we can solve complex problems by working at the nexus where art, science and technology converge to form a seamless whole. And you make the case that our thinking gets enriched uh, when you see three domains as joined up rather than as three different disciplines. Talk to us about the idea of nexus. Yeah, so the the whole point, yeah, is that we these domains and the thinking, I mean, we're we're talking stereotypes in here, okay, because it's hard to collapse all science in one set. But clearly that set, if there is an overlap, is minimal with a set of everything that is art. But given one issue, if you are asking people from these three domains to to explain how would they solve an issue. Let's say that you are trying to, I don't know, I don't know what kind of building you have in Dublin in there, but let's say that someone is trying to reconfigure the entrance of the building. You want to do something that will be functional. You, you. So if you are asking, bring an artist, bring someone from technology, bring someone from the math department and get ideas about how to do this, you're going to have diametrically different ideas, okay? So the, the point in here is that if somehow you imagine these domains as joined up rather than distinct in your brain, you are going to have a much broader set of ideas. And you know, to quote Linus Pauling, the best way to have a good idea is to have lots of ideas. Well, I I would amend that by saying a lot of diverse ideas, because if all the ideas come from one set or group of people, the ideas are going to be kind of collinear. It's not going to be an orthogonal set of ideas. So you want ideas that are very distinct from each other. And so in in broadening the set of people who normally think in very different ways, you're going to have much more of a possibility of hitting an idea that is actually good or novel. The problem with this is that in the process of thinking about this, you may very be conflicted because you may have ideas that are completely opposite to each other. They, they, they radically conflict with each other. But I also think that that's good because in reality, there are very few big, big problems that are very black or white. They all have lots of nuances. And the ability to resolve conflicts, I think is an essential skill in how to think about complex issues. And and the book 
aims to inspire the readers uh, to master the practice of nexus. And you say that uh, uh, for that to happen, we need to understand the language, culture and motivation of these three domains, the domain of science, the domain of technology and domain of art. And in the book, you give very good um, descriptions of language, culture and motivation, that how these three domains work. And it seems that there are a lot of differences also, but you are still encouraging people to have a joint up thinking. Yeah, technology actually is like a bridge. It's almost by any one of those measures, and I think we have 23 of them, it's always somewhere in between. Uh, For example, I, I give the example Uh, quoting Newton, who used the phrase not in a nice way, referring to Robert Hooke, when he said, I did what I did by standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, Hooke was almost dwarf-like, and apparently Newton was using it in that sense. So, but science, which is not that old, okay, but if you go back to when journals were for the first time accepted as vehicle of communication of results, which is not that, that something that happened in very quickly. Many people doing science or proto-science, they were opposed to the existence of journals. There is a very nice book called The Scientific Journal, appeared a couple of years ago, uh, which recounts all of that idea. So, but science, since the beginning of journals, has been kind of open source. You have to quote your references. The idea of building your results on the shoulders of prior people is a way that it works. Uh, You want to convince people that you know what you're doing, you're citing prior references. So, standing on the shoulders of giants is a good strategy in science. In technology, the only reason to stand on the shoulders of elder giants is to crush the elder giants. You come with one technology that you hope it will displace the previous technology. And in art now, especially now, it's a bad idea to stand close to anybody because derivative is really a bad word in art. You have to create your own new DNA, uh, whereas in technology, combinations of things are good. And even in science, combination of things are good in proving something new. So as you can see, in this case, technology is in between those two. And in almost any other uh, measure, uh, sort of, that you can pick, it always happens to be kind of in between. Clearly, science is the most professionalized of endeavors. There are very few people who are amateurs now in science. Technology, you can be educated, but there is still the possibility of people like Steve Jobs didn't have much of formal education. And in art, even though it has become professionalized, I mean, there are breeding grounds for artists like Yale, for example, you can still find people who are self-trained. The famous Japanese architect Ando, for example, had no formal education. 
Uh, so you so you see the gradation in there about the the structures that support you. Uh, the one in which you fly mostly without a net is in art. There's no warranty you can make a living. In science, yeah, if you become trained and you go to a good place, you're almost assured that you'll find a job somewhere. But so in technology, it's between. It's you survive by your wits. Uh, if you go alone, not as a part of a large corporation. So the three domains uh, where there are so many differences, uh, how you see that they will come together and uh, people will have the skills from these three domains and they will solve the complex problems that we are dealing with. Are you saying that there should be collaboration? Are you saying that there should be multidisciplinary courses where the skills from different domains are taught to individuals uh, so they acquire? So, so uh, what is your view that how this can be achieved? So there are courses and we have had courses here uh, that involve people from the Art Institute, artists, and people from engineering, all branches, and they have worked on on problems that uh, they decide what the problem should be, which is amazing. The fact that they agree as to what the problem is, you know. Uh, in in academia, almost everybody who reaches the end with a PhD is a smart. Beyond that, the difference is made on what taste you have, the ability to ask the right questions. Okay, that's the essential difference. So in these courses, uh, we run a course with the the subject title of the course was Data's Art. So we we gave the students, teams of four, a big data set of something, and they had to figure out how that data set could explain something. Just make it, create a narrative on how we would explain it. So one, one example was school choice in Chicago. Chicago is a pretty segregated city. The South is usually where you hear in the news about crimes, poverty. The North is wealthier. And they have data for all the schools and all the students where they going to school, how long they had to commute. And one one thing that they did, I have no idea who in the team had the idea, okay? So normally, when you think of a city and the map of the city, you think of one map. But how about a map where you stand, let's say, at point X, Y, and scale the distances on how you reach every other point in the map by public transportation? then you have infinitely many maps. And you will discover that the maps get very distorted, long, long distances, which scale to time, in the parts in which public transportation is bad. So uh, they were able to do this. In fact, you could pick a, a point in a display and the map would evolve in there. 
And that was, I don't know who in the team had the idea, but I'm almost sure because this involved coding and the, the maps were really beautiful. In fact, I displayed them outside my office. Uh, it was a nice example of combination of talents in there. What we are not saying that everybody should be like this. We are saying that if people who have the skills to manage these constituencies of people who are different and understand them uh, can become really essential in moving things forward. I, I can give you two examples. One, one in the book, uh, which we mentioned, and it's work of one of my colleagues. Uh, there is a very complete data set for one class of teams and the outcome they produce, which is Broadway musicals. So this is since the first Broadway musical, we know exactly how many people were in the team and how successful it was what they produce. Okay? How, how, was, how long was the run of the play? So the team in a Broadway musical involves a director, a producer, a set designer, a choreographer, a, maybe some other people, but essentially you have at least people who are kind of right brain, more creative, like the choreographer or the set designer, uh, people who are more left brain driven by results and how is that we're going to do this will be the producer and someone who has to navigate the intersections, which is the director, okay? Uh, by the same token, a project manager, a manager in the construction of a big building or a project has to deal with, yeah, the, the people who are the developer, who will be the person who put the money, uh, the city or, or all the regulators in there, and then on the other side, the architect and all the designers, and you have someone who has to orchestrate the whole thing, which is largely unseen because when a big building gets built, the, the one who gets all the credit is the architect. Uh, but you need someone who has to have the skills of understanding these different domains. And for every major project that you may have, uh, you, you imagine that you could have people with various different skills. I'm not talking about as diverse of a plastic artist and a mathematician in the same team, but people who have in their DNA the, the ability to understand people with different kind of viewpoints, uh, they can make things successful. One good example, by the way, not that Steve Jobs was a nice man, okay? We know, we know his faults, but Steve Jobs, when I think the closest person philosophically to Steve Jobs, the one that he could probably have the, 
the most interesting conversations about aesthetics and design, even though he was not a designer, was Johnny, Johnny Ives, who is now in London. I think he's uh, in the Royal Academy of Design or someplace like that. Johnny Ives was the designer that imparted the design fingerprint to Apple. And Steve Jobs loved the guy, okay? Because the truth is, Apple without design would have been like any other company. But when it came time to leave Apple in the hands of someone else, which I thought was a terrible mistake, uh, the polar opposite of Johnny Ives, Tim Cook, who was someone in logistics and operations, act actually an industrial engineer. Uh, in retrospective, it was the right choice because you could have picked a Johnny Ive like and think, well, all of this structure of perfection in delivering and supply chains will exist, or you pick that as the kind of grounding and hope that the ethos, the culture of design will still exist. And Steve Jobs understood both sides. Uh, in fact, I think I put a quote, I didn't talk about this story there, but I, a quote on how Steve Jobs thought that the organization of an organization was one of the most creative things. Uh, he was fascinated by that. So he could understand both sides. And it's both sides that made the thing work. You couldn't run a company with Johnny Ives alone, and it would be a really boring company if you run it with Tim Cook thinking alone. So what I'm saying is there are people who normally uh, gravitate to this. I was in Miami. I was there were lots of people that almost by self-selection in this conference, they were all sort of Nexus type thinkers. And, and people who can understand what they do, but can also understand even the limitations of what they do. One of the best comments I got uh, in, in another uh, interview I did was, uh, and this was a person coming from AI and human machine interaction. And this person said to me, you know, this book couldn't have been designed by a machine. And I, I, I love that. Although, to tell you the truth, if there were other, many other books like this, God knows that a machine probably can learn how to get cues and do it. The problem is how to do the first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so we see the Nexus culture that we're trying to, and it's not something that you can learn overnight. People will, uh, it's, it's, you have to train yourself to think more broadly, uh, even I don't know, get a broader set of friends if you want to. Uh, augment the kinds of things that you read is we see them 
as critical connectors who can, uh, you know, there are different domains that are isolated in there. You put the critical piece and you have a sample spanning cluster of ideas that you couldn't see before because each side could see your own side. When you suggest in the book that this convergence of art, science and technology is important, you also highlight that it is important to tackle big and complex problems. Uh -huh. Now, you have done work in the field of complex systems and you say that this is one way to overcome uh, complexity and it is one way to understand these complex systems better and then create solutions for them. So, so you think uh, that the big challenges that humanity uh, is facing uh, these uh, in this age, uh, in this era. Uh, perhaps this convergence, uh, this nexus thinking can help us to overcome some of those uh, challenges? I, I wouldn't say that just by... So the, the, the book has... And we, we have to... I wouldn't say fight MIT Press, but really you don't see books that have a, a title and above the title is subtitle or upper title and one title below. So the two titles are, one is augmentation of thinking, which is what we call the new convergence of art, technology and science. Brother set, brother domains. And then the other one, which is independent, is augmented thinking for a complex world. And in there, the point that we're trying to make is knowing something about complexity, something, helps you understand the world better and will help you implementing solutions uh, in a more realistic way because you are prepared, for example, to see large consequences uh, stemming from small actions. Uh, the concept of emergence, I think, is central. Uh, where they, the point where they link, in my view, is that uh, one thing that we talk about, and we, we were talking about this a moment ago, is how in this augmented thinking you are going to have ideas that are more mutually opposed to each other. And when you start studying complex systems, for example, one, one thing that emerges in there is that chaos and order are not mutually exclusive. You can have both things, depends on the resolution that you want to use for the problem. So there is a link between these two things, but the chaos complexity part is, is something in which we bring more the science and math, and it would be good if more people were understanding this because, I mean, just to be kind of simplistic for a moment, I make a big difference between systems that are complicated and complex. In complicated systems, you design all the elements, you put them where they go according to the blueprint, you leave them there, you put them together, and the system does something, like a clock, or a nuclear submarine, or a jet liner. Uh, 
complicated. Complex are systems in which, yeah, you can design the pieces. Uh, I don't know, the power grid, you can design every power station, but the way that the system or the internet, you design all the components, but the way that the system operates as a whole, it doesn't satisfy any master plan. It just happened to be like that. The world used to be more like a complicated system. Something happened in China 200 years ago. Something happened in Peking. We'll stay there, okay? Uh, not so now. Uh, we have financial links, God knows we have communication links. We have supply chain links. The world is much more complex than complicated now. And yeah, you touch one thing, everything gets affected. I mean, you see in the US how, I know, baby formula uh, is in short supply. Or even, I mean, one, one example that, I put in the book was a minor example was when there was the this disaster, nuclear disaster in Fukushima, Japan. Well, so it happens that the the only place that they were making special paint to for the for an SUV, I think was a Cadillac Escalade, was in Fukushima. So if you wanted this delivery of this big SUV in the US, no, you couldn't get it because the paint was not there. So in the in the past, uh, globalization had lots of positive effects, but a negative effect is things are much more fragile. Uh, people kind of, in in order to make all of these networks more efficient, uh, more profitable, you cut redundancies. But now one thing fails and you may have this cascading effect in which the whole thing crumbles. Now, uh, there, there are things in which the internet is always failing, but it has never failed completely, okay? And so there are lots of things that are known about networks and it will be a good idea if some people internalize some of these lessons, they will understand how the world functions better and be less surprised about things that uh, to someone who is more in the field, uh, they look like, yeah, you were expecting this. Fantastic stuff. Uh, let us now look at the process uh, that you followed to produce this book. Uh, because uh, like any book, there is very good content uh, that uh, one can read. Uh, very good examples, uh, very good uh, uh, details and descriptions. Uh, but along with that, there are fascinating images from history, uh, from 
art, uh, from design, and your co-author, who is a designer. Uh, I'm sure that he, he has uh, something to do with those beautiful images yeah, that are yeah. there. So so what is the process that you followed? And you you are an engineer, and you you, you teamed up with, with, the, with the designer and produced such a beautiful book, if I use the word beautiful yeah, here. Yeah. So Bruce, Bruce and I uh, go back a long way back. Uh, I first became aware of him when he did a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Chicago called Massive Change. And I thought, I have to meet this person. And he was living in Toronto and decided to leave Toronto. Uh, there were editorials in the Toronto Star on how bad it was that Bruce Mao was living in Canada. And then I was overjoyed when I heard he was moving to Chicago. And then in a conversation with one of my, our friends, I discovered that he basically moved across my home in my same street. Uh, so I reached to him and I told him about the idea of doing something. And the, the central point at that time was this comparison between art, technology, and science in all these categories. That was the, and the second thing was the lessons part. Uh, There's a whole chapter on lessons, like uh, uh, some coming from art that translate into everybody and some come from science. And so we talk on and off, but I was busy with my job. Uh, Bruce has a private practice. And it was conversations all along. But in Christmas 2019, I decided I wanted to organize the materials. And um, by about February 2020, I had something that I could put in a spiral binding and approach publishers. And it was hard to explain to publishers. I mean, it did, this had some images already because publishers normally say, send me a chapter and we'll decide. And this is you have to grasp the whole thing. But MIT sent it to three people. I don't know who they were. And when I got the reviews, I called Bruce and said, I think we need to kind of reactivate our conversations. And that's when the lockdown started. Uh, this, this was March. 2020. So we we met every Sunday at 11 o'clock for sure and other meetings. He has more of an army of people working for him. So for every image that we put, there were probably three or four, some images come from me, some from him, but there was a discussion about all of them. It was not like uh, I trust you completely, put whatever you want. 
even the font, colors, everything was for discussion. And even though the book was like 70% written by that, I wanted his feedback on things. So for example, I'll, I'll give you some examples that no one will detect in the book. So if you read that book, um, we decided to make the table of contents a feature of the book because it appears prominently at the beginning. And there is this opening sequence before you get into the book. And when you get into the book, each chapter has a title followed by a phrase, followed by a sentence. And no one will notice that all of them are title, phrase, sentence, okay? In the same way that no one will notice that in the table of contents, table of contents in a book, you prepare the table of contents and however long it is, that's it. Maybe four and a half pages and this half page empty. Well, if you look at the table of contents in this book, there is no empty space. It occupies all the space. So there, but the whole point that we wanted to do was the book should have lots of levels at which the reader could be engaged. Sometimes could be a footnote. And actually it's not footnotes, they are endnotes in our case of different kinds. And the endnotes sometimes could be rich enough that could give some food for thought. But we want the book to have, we wanted the book not to be linear, okay? Uh, could be read at different levels. And in fact, there's an analogy that we put in there based on a just metaphor. But there were probably three or four images that we wanted to get that we couldn't get permits for. Um, the foundations representing these artists never responded. I still, this one image that I would love to get, and I we made many attempts, but every image was discussed on why, why it should be there. But a comment that I got from someone else said, we want to leave the door, the book open in different, just to, to be inspired. Well, that's the whole point. If, if we can inspire someone to kind of, you know, I have been thinking about this, but I think it's time to get more serious about this and adding this component to my toolkit, I, I will be happy with that. Fantastic description. And uh, indeed, what you are saying about the book is right. The images that are there, and as you start looking at it, people who regularly read books, they they feel that they have something different in front of them. Oh, I love, I love that reaction from you. We are discussing your book, The Nexus, Augmented Thinking for a Complex World, The New Convergence of Art, Technology and Science. Uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. Is there anything else that you suggest we should discuss before we close this discussion? I think that um, two points. One is more for people running organizations and the other is more for universities. So for people running organizations, um, 
normally in all times and maybe even now, you want the organizations to run like a clock, which in our analogy would be a complicated system. But if you want the organization to do more than what you put into the plan, you should allow for the possibility of emergence somewhere. Uh, in fact, I would define a leader as someone who creates the conditions for successful emergence. So that's on the organizational side, and this applies to companies of all sizes. Okay? In the universities, uh, if you compare the, the organizational chart of a university with the organizational chart of a big company, at the top they are sort of similar. You have the titles may change, but you have a president of chancellor, a, a provost, a chief operating officer, provost maybe, a, a chief legal counsel, probably someone is chief marketing officer. You have the chief legal counsel. You have these people. And these people have jobs that will not morph into each other. They, those, those, those jobs are there sort of permanently. And at the bottom, uh, the, the, this gets more metaphorically uh, than real. In a company, at the very bottom, you have people who have been hired for specific jobs, and you don't expect that suddenly the guy who is in the mailroom will become someone assistant to the marketing officer, okay? And the university, you have students and student groups, and then you have schools, and within those schools, people who run research groups, and so on and so forth. The difference is that at the levels of the university, research groups, you basically, post-tenure, you are given a license to people if they so desire to reinvent themselves. Okay? And that doesn't happen in organizations. Okay? So the university, almost by design, is, is an organization that runs on successful emergence. Now, the truth is that there are many people at all levels, top, but who don't see the opportunity. They don't exploit that, uh, the, the ability that you could create your own job description in some way, okay? But there are problems with that, creating your own job description. One is the fact that universities are still organizing very classical lines with sort of boxes. And the problem is applies at all levels. I mean, applies at the level of recognition. Uh, if you are elected to the National Academy of Engineering, you have to pick, you have submit the nomination for one of those boxes to render a verdict. Uh, and could be computer science, 
okay, or could be biomedical engineer or chemical, but there are people who fit in between more and more. And the structures have not kept pace with what people do. Uh, so I would say that one topic for the future will be to think of organizational structures that reflect more the way that people are being, I wouldn't say trained now, but when you hire new faculty, it used to be that everybody that you hire in any discipline had all the degrees, bachelor's degree and master's and PhDs in the same discipline. But now you get people who have the undergraduate degrees in philosophy and then the PhDs in computer science. And, and that creates, and that's an actual example, uh, that creates for a much broader thinking space, which fits with the idea of this nexus space. Uh, so that's what I would like to see more people exploiting. Professor Julio Otino, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Wasim. Thank you for the chance of joining you in your podcast. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.